Let's turn for our next song back to number 388, Rock of Ages. Um, and uh, let's sing, um, let's sing all four. Turn back a couple to number 376. Let's sing the first and the last of 376. Last song, number 393, Creator's Spirit, by whose aid, let's sing all three of that one.
Good evening. Before we begin, just one brief uh, announcement, and that is that there will be young people's this evening. Um, just to clarify, there will be young people's this evening held at the Snellers after the evening service. If you have any questions, just uh, see Jeff Sneller on that. Beloved, the Lord calls us this evening to worship Him with these words from First Chronicles 16. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Say also, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations that we may give thanks to Your holy name and glory in Your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. That was a, a song set before Israel at a time when they were in exile, when they were scattered among the nations. And God wanted them to see that their calling was to long to be regathered, united with all of God's people that they might glorify God. Well, that's us. We live in the world. And we have been gathered together as the church, but we long for the fullness of our gathering. In the new heavens and the new earth, when all of God's people gather together to worship the Lord and to proclaim what He has done. We get a foretaste of that every time we gather as God's people. So let's ask that He would allow us to see, to recognize that foretaste and all of its glory, the glory uh, that belongs to us as God's people. Let's pray together. Moment of silent prayer and then we'll close praying together. Father, the worship to which you have called us this evening is not a matter mundane, but a taste of our eternal inheritance to proclaim with all of those who belong to you the glory and the goodness that you have shown us in Christ. We pray that you would help us to treat it according to the holiness of which our worship is to have. And that you would use this time in which we are gathered to equip us and build us up that in all of life we might worship you and confess you and give you our praise. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Beloved, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. To you who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved through Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Amen. Let's sing praise together to the Lord from number 286 in our Psalter hymnal, number 286.
We confess now, using the words of the Apostles' Creed, the God who has revealed Himself to us. Congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Our psalm selection this evening is Psalm 113, song of praise to the Lord, but not just a song of, of generic praise. It's a song of praise that acknowledges our God as the one who is exalted, the one who is inherently glorious and good and magnificent, and who also, in his mercy, magnifies and lifts up those who are weak, those who are humble, those who are poor. This is an image, really, of the work of Christ, isn't it? Philippians 2 reminds us that he's fully God. He's always been God. He's he's spent eternity in heaven. He's the one through whom the heavens and the earth were created, and yet... He humbled himself to come and live among fallen people. Men and women in their sin. And he did so, so that he could raise men and women out of the mire and the filth of their sin. And justify them and sanctify them and prepare them for the glories of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. This is what Christ has done for us. And he deserves our praise. Psalm 113, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. 
Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord indeed for his mercy and his grace. And let's take up this psalm ourselves. We'll sing from the Trinity Psalter hymnal, Psalm 113, Selection B. God is indeed good. As we come before the Lord in prayer, um, in our uh, announcement bulletin, we noted this morning the uh, need to pray for continued repentance and renewal in our land. Um, Also, the Missions Committee is requesting prayer for uh, Reverend Jansen and the work in Gig Harbor, Washington. Um, And in addition, um, Bob Chapkus um, is anticipating beginning radiation um, on Tuesday, and uh, that'll be radiation along with chemotherapy uh, that goes for five and a half weeks, so um, yeah, five and a half weeks, right? Yeah, so please keep, uh, keep Bob and Margaret in your prayers as well. Beloved, let's pray together. Oh Lord, our Heavenly Father, you are indeed Great and gracious in all your ways. We thank you and we praise you that you have shown such mercy to us as to send your Son, who is fully God and exalted over heaven and earth, to live among men, to suffer their scorn and their curses, and to endure even your own wrath because that's what we deserved. So that in this way, we could be exalted to your right hand and loved and cared for by you. Father, we stand in awe of your mercy and your might. 
And we pray that each day you would renew in us an understanding of how abundantly blessed we have been through your Son. Grant that we might not confess what Jesus has done merely as an academic exercise or a cultural trapping, but that we might daily acknowledge the unfathomable love that you showed us in sending him and the treasure that is beyond anything this world can know in the relationship you've given us with you. That we might not simply speak the words, but that we might acknowledge that what Jesus has done has renewed and transformed our very identity, has changed our future, has altered our understanding of everything. Enable us, Father, to live all of our lives in response to what Jesus has done so that our relationships and our work and our learning and our free time and our identity and our desires all might be utterly transformed into a song of praise and honor to you. And when we grow weary, when we become overwhelmed, whether by the sins of those around us or by our own sinful nature and our frustration with our seeming unwillingness to change, enable us, Father, to look with eagerness to you, trusting that you who have redeemed us from our sins through your Son will not fail to provide what we need day by day. Father, we pray for every member of this congregation. We think especially of the the many who have been suffering from unusual uh, struggles. For those dealing with cancer and broken bones and long-term ailments, Father, we pray that you would comfort and strengthen and bless each one of them. We pray for Bob as he prepares to undergo radiation and chemotherapy. Lord, we pray that you would minimize his side effects from these things and that you would make the treatment to be effective. And likewise for our other members dealing with cancer, we think of Joel and Bruce and Dan and Jamie and Norm. Lord, we pray that you would bless each of these, that you would watch over those who are uh, struggling in a variety of ways, those who, have, who are burdened by their sin or by the sins of those whom they love. We pray for... Father, we pray for our young people and our children. They are barraged by the temptations 
that the world throws at them from every side, urging them to live for the moment, to satisfy the pleasures of the flesh, convincing them that they're missing out on something essential in life if they don't do what everyone else is doing, if they don't satisfy that momentary urge, if they don't just cast aside all that they've heard from their youth and embrace what society is telling them. And we know that what society is telling them is poison. Father, give them wisdom and courage. Enable them to see that there is no hope in living for the flesh, but there is eternal hope and certain life in living as a new creation through faith in Christ. Grant them joy and excitement in living for you, in confessing you, in applying your word to every corner of life. Father, we pray that you would make our young people and our young adults to be powerful influences among the people you set in their lives. Make them to be so convicted of the truth that you've taught them that they would refuse to waver at the tempter's voice, but would instead urge their peers to turn to you and to find their hope and their strength in you. Give them a holy seriousness that they would not take lightly the eternal truths that you reveal to us. And grant that they might see the joy that is possible only through Christ. Father, we pray that you would bless those who are older. We who have walked with you throughout our youth and into our middle age and even above. Cause us to be filled, Father, with joy in your salvation. When we are beset with the trials of life, with the busyness of work and home and all the rest. Teach us, Father, to put our hope and our trust in you, to believe that you will get us through the moment and through the day, and to rejoice at the strength that you manifest through our lives, so that our young people looking on us might see that this is the way of life, this is the way of joy, this is the way that will empower me the way I was meant to be. Lord, make our marriages to reflect our faith in you. We know that left to ourselves, we will destroy our relationships. We will poison them with self-centeredness. But you are able to transform them. To make our friendships and our marriages and our parental relationships to be something new and different and foreign that this world has no way to understand, but that actually reflects the redemptive power of Christ. Teach the husbands among us to love their wives with a selflessness that is palpable, putting themselves and their desires and their, uh, their flesh last. Seeking always the good of their wives. Seeking to serve and to love them and and cause the wives 
to willingly submit to and build up and strengthen their husbands the way the church willingly submits to Christ or is supposed to. Father, we pray that you would make each of us learn to love and submit to one another, humbling ourselves before your face. Father, we pray for the church throughout this nation and throughout this world that you would cause it to be filled with that kind of transformation. That our that the personal walk of your people, that the marriages, that the, the parenting, that all of it might reflect you. And that your church might be passionate for who you are and what you have done. For only in this way will our nation change. Only in this way will multitudes be drawn to you. Father, we pray that you would bless the work in Gig Harbor. We ask that you would uh, continue to draw in new families to be members, to strengthen that work. Knit them together, we pray, with the, the saints already there. And grant wisdom and strength to Brother Jansen and the other uh, leaders of that church plant that they might shepherd it well and that that work might be a light shining in the darkness of that region. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to raise up new congregations of your church, that the light might shine forth into the darkness of this land and this world with great power. And now, Father, as we prepare to look together to your word, We ask that you might open our hearts to that word and that you would use it to equip us, to fill us with hope that allows us to live this moment, this day, this week in the hope of our eternal comfort, our eternal joy. And now we ask all of this in the name of Christ, our Savior and our King. Amen. Beloved, as we prepare to look together to God's Word uh, from our catechism and from a number of passages, uh, let's stand and sing together from number 22 in our Blue Psalter hymnal. So rendering of Psalm 16, we'll sing all the stanzas of number 22.
Well, our text this evening is from Lord's Day 22 in our Catechism. But before we read that, I'd like to read with you from 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5, starting at verse 7 of chapter 4. Now, this is one of the later letters that the Apostle wrote. Later in this letter, he explains some of the trials and hardships and persecutions that he's endured. It was truly a testimony to God's mercy that Paul was still surviving to write this. But all of that affliction, all of that hardship gave him a unique perspective on life in this world. Such that he stopped looking at the pleasures and the desires of the moment so much as looking on our eternal hope. And that's what our Lord's Day is going to remind us, that we need to live today in the light of eternity. So starting in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians, or verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, Struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to you more and more, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Amen. Now, Lord's Day 22 
brings us to the end of what we confess in the Apostles' Creed. And it asks us, what does the resurrect, or how does the resurrection of the body comfort you? And the answer is, not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ, its head, but also my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. How does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? Well, even as I already now experience in my heart the beginnings of eternal joy, so after this life I will have perfect blessedness such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has ever imagined, a blessedness with which to praise God eternally. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is it? about death that causes men to be so frightened of it? What is it about death that causes men to search the world over for a cure, an elixir, a hidden secret that will allow them to squeeze out one more year, one more month, even one more day before they face death? Why are men willing to spend fortunes to prolong their lives just a little bit before having to face death. It's sort of ironic, given that death surrounds us. Much of our food comes at the expense of some creature's death. The pets we loved since childhood on, eventually they die and we mourn them. All of our acquaintances, our friends, our loved ones, one by one we watch them die. So common is death that one would think familiarity alone would disarm it. Psychologists in our world speculate that, you know, we we probably fear death because it's so final. And because we don't really know what's coming after death. But we know that it's final. We know that you can't come back from it. So if whatever comes later is bad, if whatever comes later is hard, if whatever comes later is even non-existent, well, we can't have a do-over. We can't go back. And so we fear it because of the unknown. That's baloney. Utter nonsense. The problem, the reason we fear death, is not because we don't know what comes next, but because at heart we do. Death terrifies men because it involves a separation that is not natural, the separation of people from those whom they love, the separation of men and women from the work and the habits that define them, the separation of body and soul which were not meant to be separated. And death terrifies us because every person inherently knows that death means going to face God, the perfect, holy, just judge. And in their moments of greatest clarity, they understand they can't do that and survive. They have way too many things to answer for. Even the ones who with smug confidence say, well, you know, I look at my good deeds and then I look at my bad ones and I think my my good deeds far outweigh the bad. 
And I look at how other people are and I think, you know, I think I'm, I'm sitting pretty good. But in the dark of night, they know that they're not. They know that they can't stand. That they can't hope to endure that judgment. And so folks will do whatever they can to delay that inevitable, terrifying journey into the courtroom. But folks, we need not fear death if we are Christians. Because if we are trusting in Christ, He restores us. He restores us to God from whom our sins separate us. He restores to us the righteousness that our sins had cast off. And He restores to us the comfort that we can't have apart from Him. The comfort that sin robbed us of. And so we should fear death if we're standing in and of ourselves, if we're trusting in ourselves, if we're relying on our behavior to make us right before God. We should fear death greatly and try to prolong it as many moments as we can. But if we're in Christ, Lord's Day 22 reminds us, 2 Corinthians affirms for us, if we are in Christ, we have absolutely no need to fear death. In fact, we can look at it with absolute confidence because we know Christ has overcome it and He has overcome everything that would make it terrifying. God promises His children. And if you're trusting in Christ, that's, that's you. God promises His children the comfort of perfect restoration. That's what Lord's Day 22 shows us. He promises us the comfort of perfect restoration, which begins with the eventual restoration to glorious perfection at Christ's return. We're going to look first at the end game, at the ultimate Then we'll come back to the moment, to that which is near. But we start out looking to that which is distant. And that, that which is distant is the eventual restoration that God has promised to us in Christ of glorious perfection. But if we're going to talk about restoration, that implies that there's a need for being restored, doesn't it? And we do have a need to be restored. The very start of the Bible tells us. You know, it's funny. Um, So many modern theologians, even among the allegedly reformed churches, they scoff at the idea of regarding Genesis 1 through 11 as actual human history. But it's there that we find our problem. The issue with humankind. If this isn't history, then we can't trust that. And if we can't trust that, then we are swirling about in the dark, guessing. But it is history. It is what actually happened. And what actually happened is God put Adam in a place of absolute, utter perfection. And he gave him one command. Do not eat the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We talked about that in class this morning in catechism. And... uh, pointed out that God really, his concern wasn't really with the dietary intake 
of Adam and Eve and their offspring. It wasn't so much about the nutritional analysis of the tree. The issue was wood, and I was so proud, one of, one of the kids got it immediately. What was really the issue with the, the command? Was it about the fruit? No, it was, will you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind and strength? That's what God was really asking with that command. And he said, if you won't love the Lord your God with all that you are, if you refuse that command, in that very day you will die. And he did. Not physically. Physically he lived for hundreds more years. But spiritually he died in that day because he was cast off from the presence of God. That's why Ephesians 2 says you were dead, all of you, in your transgressions and sins. We are dead when we're cut off from God. We are dead when we are enemies of the one who gave us life. Sons of disobedience, children of wrath, it all comes to the same thing. Cut off from the God who gave us life, who should be our identity. That's why Revelation 20 describes hell as the second death. Because those who go to hell have already died the first death by being cut off from God. That's how I was born, that's how you were conceived, that's how we entered this world. We entered this world dead, cut off from God, separated. From the one who means everything. And so from the very start of our existence, we were in desperate need of restoration. In fact, the only consolation found by sinful men is their fellowship with others who are dead in their sin. In John 15 verse 19, Jesus says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. And it does. The world loves its own insofar as they're able to love. They console one another, they encourage one another, they help one another to devise theories and ideas that that allow them to deny the truth that surrounds them. The truth that God exists, the truth that God is sovereign and just, the truth that one day will stand before Him. They do everything they can to help each other believe that's not the case. No, no. Man is sovereign. Man is on the throne. Morality is flexible. We can believe what we want. We can do what we want. And we'll be fine in the end. The world loves its own. And yet even that love is tainted by the selfishness and the hatred that fills them. They identify with each other. They unite with each other even as they devour one another. And that means they stand against us, especially who love and serve the Lord. In that warning from John 15, Jesus says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And the world's hatred is lively. It's not enough for them to slander you and mock you. No, They want to destroy you. They want to destroy your business. They want to destroy your reputation. They want to drive you away. Why? Paul experienced it. We heard it a few minutes ago. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. And why were Paul and the Christians of his age so relentlessly persecuted happens today too 
In places like Nigeria and Sudan and Iran and Iraq and North Korea and China, the people of the Lord, the people who confess Christ, they are hated, they are imprisoned, they are robbed of their worldly goods, they are separated from their families. And why? It's because our faith, our existence reminds them of the reason they fear death. reminds them that they'll have to stand before that judge. And what makes things harder for us, not only does the world hate us, but the longer we live with Christ, the more we weep over this world. Our own sin becomes increasingly hateful to our eyes. The more we strive to reject it, the more we see that it's ingrained into us. So that with Paul in Romans 7, we cry out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we also become more sensitive to the sins of those around us. Like Job, we weep over and pray for the forgiveness of the sins of our children. Like Paul, speaking of the Jews, we confess that we would be willing to cut off from God if only they would be grafted in. And yet at the same time, We stand in awe of God's holiness. We come to appreciate how wonderfully perfect He is. And then we look in the mirror at ourselves and we look at the people around us and we long to escape from all of that. We long to put all of that off. But Christ consoles us in the midst of this misery of the world's hatred and of our hatred of sin and of our grief at what's happening all around us. He consoles us with the reminder that Jesus... He didn't come only to forgive our sins. He did come to do that. And that was a glorious thing. But his goal was far greater than that. Jesus came to accomplish complete restoration. Restoration above all else between us and God. So that no longer are we his enemies, but now we become his children. So that no longer do we hate God, but now we love Him and we show our love for Him in what we say and what we do and what we think and what we desire. Restoration also with one another, with people. So that we begin to love those who bear the image of God in a way that is true and real. Not just uniting with them so that together we can forget what's coming, but truly loving and pouring ourselves out for them. And restoration even. Restoration even to what we were meant to be ourselves. So that no longer are we working for our own destruction, but now we're working to bring forth the reality of the holiness to which we're called. This is our hope. This is our longing in a world filled with dysfunction and rebellion. The sure hope of restoration to glorious perfection at Christ's return. Paul expressed that hope in our scripture reading for the evening. In verse 14, he says, He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. This is is our confidence. That just as Jesus was raised from the dead into the fullness of life, he was dead for three days in the grave, and yet God raised him up to newness of life, fullness of life. So shall we be raised. The bodies that now suffer pain and dysfunction and ultimately succumb to death. 
They will no more suffer. They will be made new and better than new. All the aches and pains and struggles will be gone. The hearts that today so quickly embrace sin won't. No more will sin captivate us. Temptation will have no power over us. We will not only love, but will fully embrace the holiness of God. And the desire to serve God, which so often goes unfulfilled in our lives, no longer will it go unfulfilled. We will serve Him with all that we have and all that we are with the fullness of our passion eternally. And the relationships that we often find so hard and so filled with brokenness, there won't be any more of that drama. We will love and we will be loved without holding back, without heartache, without pain, without struggle. Won't that be amazing? And that's our hope. That's our confidence. When Jesus returns, we will be raised, our bodies renewed and perfected, our souls made utterly like Jesus in their desires, our relationships absolutely stripped of every sin, of every impurity. When that day dawns, there will be no more sin or rebellion or hatred at all. Revelation 20 shows us, in that day, all men will be brought before God's throne. There they will be judged. The wicked in their rebellion will be sent away into eternal punishment. But God's people, their bodies restored to souls, will be perfected both inside and out and will be able to live with the Lord forever. Paul describes in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 what it will be like in that day. He says, of the body what is sown, what is planted is perishable. By the way, young people, this is one of the reasons that as Christians we bury the bodies of our loved ones who die. It's a testimony to what we expect. He says what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. We take that body of the one whom we loved and we put it in the ground just like you put a seed in the ground. And just as that seed, when you plant it, it doesn't look like much. Shriveled up kernel of corn. A single piece of wheat. But then it is transformed by the Lord into this glorious plant that comes forth and puts forth leaves and colors and beauty and brings forth fruit a hundred, two hundred fold. And so shall it be for us, he says. I tell you the truth. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and we and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. That's what's coming for us, for everyone who trusts in Christ. Life today is good. It's a good thing to use our bodies productively, to be able to serve one another, to build things, to develop things, to grow things. But but life then is going to be immeasurably better because these bodies won't be wrecked with pain and brokenness and disease. 
And these minds won't be limited so that we have to stand there and, and ponder just to remember our own phone number or address. And our hearts won't be led astray by temptations and by the desires of the world. But we will be wholly and completely focused on the Lord and on His will. And we will love people the way God loves us with a love that is absolutely boundless and focused on them and their good rather than a mix of their good and ours. It will be absolutely amazing and that's what the Lord has promised to us. In fact, that's what Paul said we should be looking for right now. He says, though... Our outer self is wasting away. And it is, isn't it? When we're dealing with cancer and broken bones, when we wake up in the morning and we wonder, am I going to be able to get out of bed? I'm so sore. Our outer self is wasting away. But, he says, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Understand, our bodies in this world grow weak. Young people, you don't get that yet. You will soon. Won't be too long. You wake up in the morning after that hard day of work and you won't bounce right out of bed. You'll kind of stumble out. And it doesn't get better. It gets worse every year. But that's okay, because while your body is deteriorating, your heart is growing. You're being prepared for eternity, and very soon that body will be renewed and perfected. And your soul, having been prepared for eternity, will take up that renewed body with absolute fervor, with absolute eagerness. We will be able to serve the Lord the way we only dreamed of here below. So look forward with eagerness to the coming of that day. Think on how excellent it will be to have no more aches, no more pains, no more struggles, no more heartache, no more temptations, but perfection. The ability to perfectly love God as He loves us. The ability to perfectly love our neighbor the way we long to and fail to do today. To be able to speak with God immediately the way a man speaks with his closest friend. To enjoy all of that amidst the perfection of a creation. A creation that is renewed. That's more than our minds can conceive of. If you ever have trouble sleeping, lay there and think about what it's going to be like to be in the new heavens and the new earth. To have yourself perfected. To live in a world that's perfected. To be among a people that are perfected. Boggles the mind. In fact, don't try to fall asleep doing that. You'll just wake yourself up. That's what we look forward to. That's the end game. But what about in the meantime? What do we expect until then? We saw this morning that God, out of compassion, has delayed the day of judgment. And that means that there's utter and complete perfection of body and soul and world and everything. That's been delayed. So what about the interim? Well... Not only do we expect the eventual restoration of glorious perfection at Christ's return, we also expect the essential restoration to God's presence at our death. And that's the other thing we need to see here. In truth, that restoration... 
to the Lord begins before death. It begins when we turn to Christ. Jesus said in John 5 verse 24, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Already now. Those who are dead in their sin, those who are dead in their separation from God, they hear the voice of the Son of God, and by the Spirit of God they come forth into life. And when we come to Christ by faith, when we put our hope in Him, we are given the assurance immediately, judgment is gone. When Jesus died on the cross, when He suffered the wrath of God on that tree, He did it for you. So you won't have to. There is no purgatory. There is no suffering. There is no waiting room. The punishment has been paid. And now, now you're beginning to be transformed. Our outer self, says Paul, is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed. God is changing us. He's turning our hearts away from the sin that once held them captive. He's teaching us to crave the holiness that we once scorned. He's replacing the hatred of our hearts with a love that reflects the love of Christ. God is transforming us from the image of sinful Adam into the image of perfect Christ. In Philippians 1 verse 21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ. And that's what Christians experience. To live is Christ. Because Christ has become our truest. Young people hear this. If you are a Christian, if you are truly in Christ, your identity is not tied to your school or to your nation or to your family or to your friends, or to your music, or to your TikToks, or to your anything else. For me to live is Christ, which means that our identity is that I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. That my future is bound up with Christ, that my present is bound up with Christ, that my purpose is bound up with Christ, that my strength is drawn from Christ. For me to live is Christ, as our catechism said in answer 58. I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. Because my identity is tied to Christ. And because of that, we no longer fear death. It still hurts. Because it separates us briefly from the people we love. But we don't fear it because we already have a love that transcends death. As I said, Jesus already took the wrath of God against our sin. He died so that we might live. And since our debt has been paid, we expect death to bring not judgment, but restoration. Paul doesn't just say, for me to live is Christ. He also says, and to die is gain. And then two two verses later, he explains, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. 
How is that better? Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. When we are here, we are distracted from the Lord. When we're in this world, we are distracted by the work and the worries. By the temptations and the tragedies. By the drama of the moment and the disappointments of sin and loved ones. The Lord is with us, and yet in a sense we are away from the Lord because our eyes are not fully captivated by Him. But in the day when He takes us home, we are no longer away. We are fully and wholeheartedly and absolutely in the presence of the Lord. Nothing distracts us from understanding that He is our all and all. Nothing turns us away from understanding that He is the fullness of our very being and identity. But how's that work? What does death involve? For unbelievers, death holds much cause for fear. The Bible doesn't focus on the dying experience of unbelievers, which is probably a good thing. But it's very clear from what little we see that the unbeliever, upon death, immediately enters into judgment. It's probably a probationary judgment. Jesus talks in Luke 16 about Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man who cared little about the beggar Lazarus, when he dies, he goes to a place where he can recognize that not everyone is with him, that some are in the presence of God in rich blessedness, but he himself is in torment so that he longs for someone to just dip their finger in water and place it on his tongue. He is in absolute torment. But that's not the final torment because there comes a time when he'll have to stand before God and answer for all his sin and the judgment will be proclaimed before all the world. This man was a rebel against God. He deserved hell. That's the little we know about death for an unbeliever. But we know a lot about the dying experience of a believer. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 6, We are always of good courage. For we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul isn't saying there we have no communion here with God, but he's saying that the communion we will have then with God is so much better, fuller, bigger, more complete, that it will make it seem like we had none at all here below. In Revelation 6, John describes the souls of the martyrs in heaven. They were martyrs. They were killed for their faith in Christ. And yet in heaven they lived. They worship, they speak to the Lord. Revelation 7, he describes how the people of God who, were, who have come out of the great tribulation, that's the age in which we live, the great tribulation, the time in which the enemies of God thrive on the, on the world, in the world. And he says those who come out of the great tribulation, they surround The throne of God. You've got the throne of God with the four living creatures, the cherubim. And then you've got the elders, the leaders of the church, Old and New Testament alike. You've got innumerable angels. And then you've got this uncountable throng of believers from all over the world, from every age. And they are gathered together and they are worshiping the Lord. Now there are so many questions that we don't have answers to. 
Is there a physical aspect to their existence? Aside from their worship, what are they doing? How do they understand each other? Do they all speak the same language? There's so many things that we'd love to know, little details. He doesn't tell us those details because he wants us to focus on what's important. We're alive. We're in the presence of God himself. We're in the midst of all the saints. We're worshiping the Lord. We're proclaiming the greatness of our God. Sin and sorrow and tears are behind us. And we are rejoicing at the fullness of what God has done for us. After this life, says our catechism, I will have perfect blessedness such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has ever imagined, a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. We don't need to know the specifics if we know that. Consider for just a moment before we conclude what God has promised you between your death and the day of final judgment. 2 Corinthians 5, you will gain a new dwelling place. Your body, racked and ruined by the brokenness of this world, it's going to return to dust. But you will inherit a heavenly existence with God. You will enter fully into His presence. No longer will you serve Him whom you cannot see, but you will see the Lord. You will see His glory. You will behold yourself, the fullness of the majesty of God, which no man living can see and still survive. Revelation 7 shows us that we will join with the saints of every age in confessing the goodness of God. And Revelation 20 tells us that we will reign with Him in some manner, He will grant you authority alongside of Christ. You will intercede before God for the saints who still live. And the privilege that will be yours will be unimaginably great. And the icing on the cake? No sin. No weakness. No failure. No fault whatsoever. What God desires, you will desire from the heart. Temptation will have no effect upon you. How amazing that will be. How blessed our existence. We will desire what God desires and we will rejoice to see it come to pass. And that's not even all of it. Because we'll be waiting for that time when our souls will be reunited to our bodies and we'll be able to use all of our gifts to the full in serving the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. So while there is much concerning the restoration to come of which we don't know, what we do know is amazing. Yes, death remains our enemy because it separates us from the ones whom we love and because it's not natural. It still feels like judgment for sin. But because of Jesus, it is not. Because of Him, it is a doorway into the fullness of the presence of God. And therefore, we can greet death with confidence, even with joy and with an absolute absence of fear. So, brothers and sisters, here's your calling. Believe what God has taught you, what God has repeatedly told you in His Word concerning the triumph of Jesus over death and all that makes it terrifying and concerning the comfort of His restoration. Don't doubt what He said. Don't second-guess it. But believe the triumph that Jesus has won and rejoice. Praise God 
for his amazingly generous care for you. Praise Christ for the triumph he has won for you. Praise the Holy Spirit for the faith he has implanted into you. And when that day dawns for you to depart from this life and enter into heaven, rejoice. Rejoice. Because you get to enter into the fullness of the presence of your God. Now may he who chose us and the Son who saves us and the Spirit who guides us, one God, gracious and good, fill us with confidence at that which he has established for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess that there are times we fear death. There are moments when we desperately long to avoid it. Grant us faith to believe what you have told us. That your son has removed all that makes death terrifying. And that for us, trusting in him, our future is glorious indeed. Fill us with a growing confidence concerning the promises that Christ has fulfilled for us. And in the day that you have ordained to take us home, grant that we might testify boldly to our hope, to our joy, to our certainty that we are entering into the fullness of your presence and your blessing. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, in response, let's stand and sing together from our Trinity Psalter hymnal number 470, When This Passing World Is Done. 470.
Our offering this evening is for the work of Classis Michigan. For that, let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you have united us to other churches of like mind and desire. We pray that you would bless our offering this evening, that it might aid the work of our churches, that it might be used both to promote the spread of the church and the well-being and the care of your churches. Father, we pray that you would continue to spread your kingdom, to gather in your people, and to cause us to love and serve you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Our offering song this evening is Psalm 30 from our Trinity Psalter hymnal, number 30. We'll sing all five stanzas.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.